0: Hello, and welcome to Texas True Crime. I am your host, Jessica. I bet a lot of you have heard the urban legend of the man with the hook for a hand attacking teenagers and young couples in their cars on lover's lanes. Or some of you may have watched the horror movie, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. What if I told you that both of those are actually based somewhat on facts? they're based on the unsolved Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Now, these murders happened way back in 1946, and they remain unsolved to this day. Um, Over about three months in Texarkana, a masked man began targeting young couples on lover's lanes. He ended up attacking eight people in all. Five people were murdered and um, the other three actually got away, but it's kind of amazing and it does actually sound like a horror movie. So let's get into the case. The town of Texarkana actually straddles the line between Texas and Arkansas, which is why it's named Texarkana. Half the town is located in Miller County, Arkansas, and the other half is in Bowie County, Texas. Now law enforcement from both states, the Texas Rangers and the FBI worked to solve this case, but no one was ever caught and convicted and law enforcement had quite a few suspects and one very strong suspect, but no one ever really quite fit. The first attack took place on February 22nd, 1946. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary were out on a double date with Jimmy's brother and his girlfriend. The couples had gone out to dinner and a movie, and then... They had all decided it was time to go home for the night. Well, Jimmy was hoping to have a little bit of time on his own with Mary Jean, so he offered to drop his brother and his date off first. So after he dropped his brother off and his date off, They stopped off at a secluded spot on Richmond Road. The couple had only been there for just a little bit, maybe 10 minutes, when all of a sudden, a man shined a light into the car window. Now, if you've ever been in a car at night, you know if someone shines a light, even if headlights hit you, it's blinding. So they couldn't see at first. The man jerked the door open and ordered them to get out of the car. Now, at first, they couldn't really see this guy, and Jimmy thought it might be a prank. But as soon as he got out and saw that the guy was wearing a hood-like mask over his face, he knew that this was not a joke. In fact, the guy was wearing something that looked kind of like a pillowcase, a white pillowcase that he had cut uh, slits out for eyes and then a slit for his mouth. Um... He then told Jimmy to take his pants off. At first, Jimmy didn't want to. He even refused. But Mary Jean thought maybe if they would comply, the man would take their money, rob them, take the car, whatever it is he wanted, and then go on about his way. So Jimmy went ahead, took his pants off like Mary urged him to do. But as soon as his pants were off, the guy hit him in the head twice. Now. It ended up being that he hit Jimmy in the head with the butt of his gun, but the noise was so loud. Mary Jean told police later on that she at first thought that Jimmy had been shot, but what she really heard was the sound of Jimmy's skull cracking. He ended up having a fractured skull with multiple, with multiple places where it, would, where it was fractured. Mary thought, like I said, that the guy was probably trying to rob him. So she grabbed Jimmy's pants and pulled his wallet out and said, you know, look, we don't have any money. We don't have anything. And then the guy screamed at her and told her that she was lying and that she had a purse. Mary said, no, I don't have a purse. I don't have any money with me. So then he turned around and hit her on the head with the butt of his gun and knocked her down. Now, she was able to get back up. Jimmy was laying unconscious on the ground, and she was able to get back up. Well, when she got up, he told her to run. So Mary took out. She ran. She ran towards a ditch, but the man called out to her behind her and told her to run in the other, di- in the other direction. Mary told cops that she felt like she was being hunted and that the man wanted her to stay out in the open where he could see her and watch her. Soon, the man caught up behind her, and when he did, he said, Why were you running away from me? And she looked at him and said, You told me to. Then again, he screamed at her and called her a liar and pushed her down to the ground. He then sexually assaulted her with the barrel of the pistol. Now, back at the car, Jimmy was beginning to come to. He noticed Mary was missing and he noticed that man was gone also. So he got up and managed to walk to Richmond road and he flagged a car down. Now he told the guy what had happened and asked him to please call police. Jimmy stayed back at the crime scene, hoping that he would, could find Mary Jean and the driver went to a funeral home nearby and called the police. Now, When the masked man saw the car stopping to help Jimmy, he ran off into the woods and vanished. Mary got up and she ran off in the other direction. She actually ended up running about a half a mile to another house where she also asked the house owners to call police. So Sheriff Bill Presley of Bowie County, so this was on the Texas side, and three officers were the first to arrive. And they immediately began searching the crime scene, hoping they could find something to point them in the direction of who this crazed man was. Um but there was nothing. It seemed like the man had vanished, and there really wasn't much for the police to go on. There were a few tire tracks, but they were common. They weren't specific to any brand or model of car. Now, they did find Jimmy's pants about a hundred yards away but his wallet was still in the pockets and there was nothing taken. They hospitalized Jimmy and um, he would actually end up being unconscious for over a week. So it was a little bit before the police ended up really being able to question Jimmy. But they questioned Mary and she told them that she thought their attacker was about six feet tall, but that he was an African-American man. Now, um, when Jimmy did come around, he told them that he thought the man was about six feet tall, but he was white and about 30 years old. So this left little for police to go on when your two eyewitnesses don't even agree on if the man was African-American or if he was white. Now, things died down, and police even kind of started to wonder If this was some personal attack that maybe Jimmy and Mary Jean even knew the guy and they were trying to cover for him and decided they just were going to let it all go. But about a month after the attack on March 24th, on Sunday morning, a man was driving his car down the side of Rich Road. Now, he noticed a car parked on the side of Rich Road, and that was really unusual because this wasn't a place where people would pull over and park their cars. So thinking someone had car trouble or something else, the driver pulled over to see what was going on. He walked over and looked inside the car, and he saw a man crouch down in between the front seats, but he was in a really odd position. His head was resting on his crossed hands and his pockets had been turned inside out. Now in the backseat of the car, there was a woman lying face down, and her pockets were also turned inside out. At first, the guy thought that maybe they were sleeping, but the more he looked, he realized they were dead. There was blood all inside the car, and dripping down the running boards outside of the car. Both and at closer look, he realized that both the man and the woman had been shot execution style. So again, Sheriff Bill Presley was called out to the scene, and they were able to eventually identify Richard Griffin, who was 29, and Polly Ann Moore, who was 17. Now, I know this sounds kind of creepy, because why would a 29-year-old and a 17-year-old be out on a date together? But you got to remember, this was 1946, and things were different at this time period. That was considered acceptable. Now, police were able to figure out that the couple had been out on a date the night before with Richard's sister and her boyfriend. They um, were together till about 10 p.m., and same thing, Um, Richard dropped off his sister and the boyfriend, and then they left to go park on Rich Road, which was also another known spot where couples would park for a little time alone. At the crime scene this time, police found a patch of blood-soaked soil uh, not too far from the car. So police originally thought that the couple had been shot outside of the car and then put back in the car and placed in the strange positions. Later on, tests would show that the blood that they found on the ground matched Polly Moore's blood type. They also were able to confirm later on that Polly Ann Moore had also been raped just like Mary Jean Larry had with the, with the barrel of a pistol. Police were able to find two 32 caliber shells at the scene of the crime, which they thought could have possibly come from a Colt pistol. But yet again, Police were unable to find much evidence because rainstorms throughout the area the night before had washed away almost all of the evidence from the crime scene. And so, yet again, investigators had hardly anything to go on. Now, on March 27th, three days after the bodies had been found, police interviewed between 50 and 60 witnesses, but they really weren't able to gain anything substantial from any of these witnesses. At this point, people were terrified. They were worried that they could be next. They were worried they could be targeted. So people got to where they weren't leaving their houses after dark. Gun sales skyrocketed throughout the town. There was no ammo to be found anywhere. And if you did go visiting someone's house after dark, you either called them first or people would stand in the yard and yell out to let them know who they were before knocking on the door because they were worried they might get shot. People were terrified. Um, but that also made everyone in town real nervous. So they were calling police for every little thing. You know, if they got the side eye from someone, they were calling and saying, maybe that's the mass killer. Because by now, the press had dubbed this guy the Texarkana Moonlight murder, or some also called him the phantom killer. Um, By March 30th, they offered a $500 reward, but still, this led to nothing. Three suspects were taken into custody for possessing bloody clothing, but they were all cleared. Now, on Friday, April 12th, Paul Martin told his parents goodbye In Kilgore, Texas, and drove two hours to Texarkana to see his friend, 15 year old Betty Jo Booker. Betty Jo played the saxophone in a group called the Rhythm Airs. She was gonna play that night at the local VFW club. And then when the show was over, Paul picked her up. And before she was supposed to go to a slumber party, but they were old childhood friends. They had known each other since elementary school, but Paul had moved away. And so, you know, he came to visit. So he picked her up and before he dropped off at the party, he drove over to the edge of North Park Road. They wanted to have a few minutes to talk and catch up before she went to the party. Now, they never made it to the party because a couple found them the next morning at about 6.30 a.m. They found Paul first. He was lying along the edge of North Park Road, and even from several feet away, it was obvious to the couple that he'd been shot multiple times. Sheriff Bill Presley, again, was the first to arrive on the scene. They quickly figured out that Paul had been with someone else, but they couldn't find Betty anywhere. It took them until 11.30 a.m. to find Betty Joe's body, but she was nearly two miles away from the scene. They found her fully clothed, sitting up against a tree with uh, her back to the tree. Now, it was obvious to police that she had been posed that way. Her coat was buttoned all the way up to her chin. Her right hand was resting in the pocket of her coat. Betty Jo had also been shot multiple times, just like Paul had. Now, later on, when the bodies were examined, it showed that Paul had been shot four times in total. One bullet went through his nose, one went through his left ribs from behind, suggesting that he had probably been running away from the attacker. Another bullet was found in his right hand and one had exited through the back of his neck. Betty Jo, like I said, had been shot twice, once in the chest, and the other one was a direct shot to her face. And just like the other two victims, she had also been sexually assaulted with the barrel of the pistol this um was almost identical to the second murder now one of the main differences was that the victim's car was not near either of the bodies and police finally found the car but it was a mile and a half away at spring lake park which um was actually closer to paul's body but it was 3 miles away from Betty Joe's body so it almost seems like the attacker he enjoyed scaring his victims and obviously Paul and Betty Joe had tried to run but it makes you think that this guy must know the area pretty well because in the dark he was able to track them because At this time, Texarkana was a rural small town. So these were not heavily trafficked areas, which was why they were lovers' lanes. So this guy knew the area and he was basically hunting them through the dark, tracking them down. Now, the keys were still in the ignition. And because the crime scene was so spread out and all over the place, it made it really difficult for police to determine who the killer went after first or what really happened, but they were starting to realize this guy didn't want anything except to kill people. He wasn't stealing money. He wasn't stealing cars. He was just attacking and killing people. Now, the last attack was very different than the other attacks It was the only one to actually happen on the Arkansas side of the border, and it was the only attack that would happen in the couple's home, and they were a married couple. So, for a while, investigators really were not sure if they wanted to tie this one also to the phantom killer, but the more police... Looked into it. They have decided that yes, it must be the same guy, but there's still some speculation to this day. The last attack was on May 3rd and it was just before 9 p.m. Virgil and Katie Starks were at their home and they were settling in for the evening. Virgil had gotten into his favorite chair. He was listening to his favorite radio show and reading the paper. Katie was tired. She um brought Virgil a heating pad for his back and then she kissed him goodnight and she headed to their bedroom to get ready for bed Katie was already lying down in bed when she thought she heard something in the backyard so she called out to Virgil and asked him to turn down the radio Virgil got up from his chair he walked over to the radio but before he could turn it down Katie heard breaking glass she jumped up she ran to the living room and that's where she saw Virgil standing but he immediately fell back down into his chair. When she looked, his face was covered in blood and she realized he'd been shot. She couldn't tell him any times and she didn't realize it at the time, but the killer was standing just outside the window behind Virgil's chair on their front porch. Katie ran to Virgil to try to help him, but he was already dead. She then ran to the telephone to try to call for help. But while she was trying to crank the phone twice, she, to make the call, because remember, this was back in the 40s. You didn't just punch the buttons or find your friend's name and call. You had to crank that phone to get an operator. Well, she was only able to crank it twice and then she herself was shot twice. He shot her once in the right cheek and then the second just below her lip. It instantly broke her jaw, splintered her teeth. Now the first bullet, Exited behind Katie's left ear. And then the second shot was lodged underneath her tongue. Y'all, Katie's a badass. She drops down to her hands and her knees and she crawls back to her bedroom. Her face is covered in blood. She can't really even see because blood is streaming all into her face. But she manages to find, get herself composed, and then remembers Virgil's got a pistol in the living room. So she turns around crawls back to the living room to get the gun, but she can't feel anything. I'm sorry, not feel anything. She can feel everything. She can't see anything. So she's feeling around with her hands and trying to find the pistol. And then she realizes someone's trying to get in the house with her. The killer is not gone yet. He's gone around to the back door and he's trying to get into the back door. But when that didn't work, he started trying to pull the screen off the window and climb into the kitchen window. So Katie then turns around, gets back up off of her hands and knees and blindly runs out the front door of the house. So she's in her nightgown, covered in blood, barefoot in the front yard, running. She runs across the street to her brother and sister-in-law's house. But they weren't home. So then this poor woman has to run another 50 yards or so to their neighbor, A.V. Prater. Now, thankfully, he was home. So Prater rushed into the yard where he found Katie and she was able to get out. Virgil's dead and then she collapses. So Prater runs back in. He grabs a rifle and fires it into the air, hoping to alert the neighbors and maybe scare this guy off. Elmer Taylor. And some other neighbors, they hear the shots and they come out and they respond and call the police. Now, Taylor Prater and his wife and their baby rush Katie to the hospital. Katie somehow, I'm telling y'all, she's a badass. She remains remains conscious all the way to the hospital and is then able to go into surgery and she survives and they're able to repair the damage to her face. Now, when police arrive at the crime scene at their house, they will later they will tell people that Katie left a river of blood and teeth in her wake as she ran through the yard. It was gruesome. There was blood on the walls, there was blood on the floor. Um, it was very different than Anything the Phantom Killer had ever done, even you know, before he attacked people in cars and vanished. But this time, he had been in their home. And um also, a change was that instead of the pistol, it looked like he'd probably used an automatic rifle this time. um And like I said, too, this was the only attack that took place in Arkansas. All the other attacks had taken place on the Texas side of Texarkana. Now, the FBI had been called in, the Texas Rangers, they still were having a hard time finding any leads or anything to help point in the direction of who this might have been. And again, they received all kinds of phone calls and tips, but they didn't lead to anything. And each time it was, it was like the guy had vanished like a phantom. Um, Now, finally, Officer Max Tackett made a breakthrough. He stopped and he thought about the fact that every time there was an attack, there was also a car that had been stolen from the same area each night. The car that had been stolen on the night of the murders of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore had been found in a parking lot about a month later after their attack. So, Officer Tackett decided to stake the car out until he found the thief. He thought maybe, you know, this guy would return to the car and they could finally catch someone for all of these attacks. But instead of some guy coming back to the car, it was a cute young woman. Now, police went ahead. They arrested her so they could question her. And it turns out her name was Peggy Stevens, and she was 21 years old. She told Officer Tackett that she had just gotten back from Shreveport, Louisiana, where she had just gotten married to a man named Ewell Swinney. Now, she told officers that her husband was in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen vehicle. And she didn't hold anything back. She told him, you know, he steals cars, and he's been stealing cars. And when they questioned her, she's, she gave them actually several different stories that we'll get into. But they, um, and each one led them to believe that she was probably there for the attacks. So police held her in custody and they went down to wait for Swinney to get off the bus there in Texarkana. Well, they waited and there he was. He came off the bus right there in Texarkana and as soon as he saw police, he tried to run, but the police were able to corner him. And as soon as he did, he said, please don't shoot me. He didn't even ask why. And he said, officer, please don't play games with me. I know you want me for more than stealing cars. And then on the way back to the station in the back of the car, he um, asked if he was going to get the electric chair. So, you know, that's pretty interesting. You know, if you're just stealing cars, you don't assume you're going to get the electric chair. And you would also not just come right out and say, you know, you're here to pick me up for more than just car theft. Now, uh, Yule Swinney was 29 years old, and he became the primary suspect in the Texarkana Moonlight murders. He was a known criminal, he had a long list of prior convictions that included car theft, counterfeiting, burglary, and assault. Peggy, Swinney's wife, would confess on three different occasions that he was the phantom killer. But then she recanted her statements, and when it finally went to trial, she refused to testify against him because he was her husband. So, of course, their case fell apart, and they were actually able only to convict him for all the car thefts because he was a repeat offender. Sweeney ended up spending about 26 years in prison um, and he was released in 1973, but on his release, he went back to his old habits of counterfeiting and stealing cars. Um, and even though police really did believe that he was the phantom killer, he was never charged with any of the murders. Now, of course, which also he denied till the day he died in a Dallas area nursing home in 1994. Now, over the years, there have been all kinds of theories and people who are, were suspected of being the phantom killer. Uh, Suspects included a University of Arkansas freshman who committed suicide in 1948. They thought maybe it was an escaped German prisoner of war and there was even an L.A. resident who believed that he might have committed the crimes while he was in a coma. Um, In 1948, a cold case involving the disappearance of a 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter from Texarkana was thought by some to be tied to the phantom killer, but Sweeney was already in prison by that time. And in 1999 and in 2000, an anonymous woman contacted surviving family members of the phantom's victims to apologize for what her father had done. But Yule Swinney never had a daughter. Another interesting um, theory was that the Zodiac killer could have possibly been the phantom killer. He um, also mainly targeted couples. And in at least one of his crimes, he used a bright flashlight to shine it into the eyes of his victims to disorient them, just like the Phantom Killer did to all of his victims. Um, Also, one of the survivors of the Zodiac Killer described him wearing a hooded costume that was very similar to uh, that of what was reported that the Phantom Killer wore. Now, lots of people have pointed these similarities out, but the crimes were separated by almost 25 years. And the people who did see the Zodiac Killer described him as re- relatively young. So the timeline really doesn't match up. And I mean, even if we thought that the Phantom Killer was like 18 when he committed the Texarkana killings, he would have been in at least his early 40s during all the Zodiac killings. So again, it just, you know, it might could work, but it really doesn't seem like it's possible. Um, But a lot of people do believe that the Zodiac killer might have been inspired by the Texarkana Moonlight murders because his attacks were similar to that of the unsolved crimes in Texarkana. Now, the remaining victims of the Texarkana Moonlight Murderer who survived Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean Leary, and then, of course, um, Katie Starks all went on. Katie Starks went on to outlive everyone. She was the third survivor of. The Moonlight Murderer, and she survived her gunshot wounds to her face and made a full recovery. She did end up remarrying and um, was Katie Starks Sutton. Now, of everyone, she was a true survivor because she not she outlived everyone except one or two of the junior police officials who served as investigators on this case. When she died on July 3rd of 1994, almost all the sheriffs and the original detectives had already passed away, making her one of the last living people to um, be left from the original crime. And she was buried next to her new husband, Forrest Sutton. And on the other side of her was her husband, Virgil, who died at the hands of the phantom killer. Now, Jimmy Hollis, he recovered from his multiple skull fractures and in time he did heal. He um, returned to his regular life and he, but he did, he did not stay in Texarkana. He moved away from the region. He moved about an hour south to Shreveport, Louisiana, where he married and started a family and actually ultimately had seven kids. It was rumored that he worked for NASA at one point. And that he went on to live a normal and happy life. But unfortunately, at the age of 54, he passed away in his sleep. Now, Mary Jean Leary, she um, was released from the hospital the morning after, but she struggled to overcome her emotional trauma and all of her life. She struggled with a lifelong assortment of fears and nightmares. She left the state and moved to Oklahoma to live with relatives But even then, she refused to go upstairs alone. She did not like to stay in a dark room. She was scared to sleep by herself. And um, unfortunately, she passed away um, early in life of cancer at the age of 38. So uh, it really, it haunted her for the rest of her. For the rest of her life. And the phantom killer, the case of the phantom killer, which also, of course, was later called the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, has never been solved, like I said. And most people believe it never will be. It's also believed that the phantom killer is one of America's earliest examples of a serial killer. Of course, that term wasn't documented until much later on. And by that time, the case had already been, had already been cold for a long time. Um, thank you for listening with me again today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to rate and subscribe and tell your friends. You can follow me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com and, um, Please tune in next time. Thank you so much.